0: One of the pleasures that I have of doing this podcast is getting to understand the backstories of some incredible people, but never in a million years did I think that I'd be able to interview and have a conversation with one of my favorite designers, Daniel Kearns. Daniel is an Irish menswear designer who has worked at some of the biggest fashion houses that you know from Alexander McQueen, Louis Vuitton, Yves Saint Laurent and more. Most recently, he's the creative director for Kent and Cohen, which is one of my favorite brands. And being able to sit and record this episode was incredible. We talk about everything from his backstory, growing up in Ireland, what it was like to go and, and, and find himself in the world of fashion, all the way to what it's like running this business And operating during COVID. This is an episode which I never in a million years had thought would be possible, so enjoy. Daniel, thank you so much um, for coming on the podcast today. You um, might not know this, but I've been a a huge fan of what you've done with uh, Kenton Kerwin for quite a few years now, Um, and I'm sure that uh, if the audience were able to see, then they would see me and you uh, fully dressed in in the brand. Um, Why don't we start with a bit of an introduction on who you are for those that aren't too sure, Um, and then we can dive into your backstory.
1: Uh, Thanks, Zach, and thanks for having me on today. Um, Yeah, so I've been uh, the creative director of uh, the brand Kenton Kerwin for the past five years. Um, And um, in recent times in the past year, I've taken on an extra role um, for the, um, the group that I work for, Trinity Group, um, as creative director of all the brands in the group. So that incorporates Gives and Hawkes um, and Shruti as well as Kenton Kerwin. So, so that's me.
0: Let's take it all the way back and kind of start at the beginning. What were your early influences when it came to fashion? And how did you sort of go about pursuing them when you were growing up? It's funny because fashion was kind of never
1: really on my radar in terms of a career as a teenager. But music, I mean, I grew up in Dublin. I went to an all boys Jesuit school and played rugby and, you know, kind of had, um, I guess, a a kind of upbringing away from that world. Um, My mother actually, you know, was probably an initial sort of intro into that. And I used to advise her on outfits when she was getting ready to go out for dinner and things like that. I, you know, then I hear backstories that apparently I used to raid my dad's wardrobe and, and cut all the uh, crocodiles off his polo shirts um, and stitch them onto the legs of trousers. Uh, So there must've been something going on uh, at an early age. And then um, it really, for me, was music. So it was watching, um, shows like The Word or watching, you know, even Top of Pops or MTV. And, you know, certain bands just resonated, whether it was New Order, uh, Joy Division, The Smiths, The Cure. You know, I went through every phase as a teenager from, you know, having a Cure head to dressing like Morrissey in pajama shirts. And um, for me, that was the inspiration. And in a way, it was kind of I saw clothes as a way to express yourself and growing up in Dublin in the sort of environment I grew up in it was like it, it had a power in a way because everybody was quite conforming to a standard kind of appropriate way, way of dressing and for me it was an opportunity to, um, to really sort of make make my own statements, if you like, in terms of the influences. So it was very music-driven um, initially. And it was only, I think, when I was getting ready to apply for art college, um, I saw um, Philip Tracy on the cover of the Irish Times. And he, had, he, he was working with Karl Lagerfeld and, and working with some of the, the big designers in Paris. And I just thought, wow, that's such an incredible Thing to do, you know, and I, you know, I guess that kind of was there in the back of my mind um, when I went to college. But when I went to college first, it was to do
0: art; it wasn't actually to do fashion. And then I guess you sort of ended up pursuing fashion and having it become a job, which you didn't sort of even really realize was going to be the route that you that you took in the beginning. At what point did you sort of? realize that this was something that you were passionate about to the point where you were looking to pursue it because I mean when you look at the journey that you've you've had over the years that have sort of led you up to where you are today it's a very interesting one because I suppose a lot of people wouldn't realize quite how long a journey you've actually had yeah,
1: I think probably it was actually when I got to NCAD which is National College of Art and Design in, in Dublin um, and it was in an environment surrounded by other creatives whether it was you know sculptors or painters or you know graphic designers or furniture designers and it was being in that sort of creative environment um, and I realized um, I had some great tutors there Francis McDonough and, and uh, was head of fashion at the time, and um, I just saw that there was a kind of gap, if you like for men'swear and i get, maybe it was just within the context of the college at the time I just thought right well i i don't feel like i'm ready to take on women 's, but men's is something I kind of feel close to you know i I feel close to personally I feel it's something that I could do and i was I got very excited about that I used to then start making my own shirt. So like, I'd want to go and meet friends in town uh, in Dublin and I'd figure out that morning, right, I'm going to make a shirt. So I'd make a shirt with a domestic sewing machine that morning to wear that afternoon. (laughs) So it became like a bit of an obsession in terms of just making bits, making statements. I, I then in college was started to look into wearable technology. So there was that other sort of side that what can you do that's new, that's different? Um, and that's why I, I went to the Royal College of Art is because I wanted to pursue an MA and I wanted to look into menswear, I guess, in a kind of deeper way. I mean, I, you know, today, I've, as you said, it's a long journey. So I guess I kind of have to figure out what my place was within menswear or within fashion. But sure. I definitely had an interest at that point. That definitely was kind of like, solidified it for me and um and I I was you know I found that I was able to express what I wanted to you know I I play music I for me there was a big passion for either fashion or music and I kind of was torn for a long time as to which I should do Um, I'm glad I chose fashion I guess Um, and and in a way you know, uh, looking at uh, what I was doing in college and looking at my kind of passions away from college, I guess fashion was a way of sort of bringing a lot of things together. And I'm fortunate that today I can express a lot of those things, whether it's putting together shows and whether it's putting together shoots or things on e-commerce or social media, you know, you kind of, you're within all of those worlds. And I find that really exciting. So I'm kind of, yeah, I, I think it was, It's when it's when I realized that that in terms of an art form is the one that I could express what I wanted to do.
0: Sure. So once you finished at uh, art college and university, what happened next? Where was your next step naturally from university and how did you end up pursuing this career to a point where you were then working at a fashion house? Well, so I get, you know, the next step for me was moving to the Royal
1: um, for the MA course. So I did that. Um, I stayed um, an extra year after going to Dolce & Gabbana for six months in, in Italy where I did a placement. And I came back and then decided to stay an extra year at the Royal, um, bizarrely doing a, a P, an MA uh, in, in research. So I started to do a PhD into fibre technology looking at looking at certain fibers and how they could mold to the body. um, It was a, it was a huge undertaking. And so I kind of backtracked and ended up finishing on an M fill, which I guess is a bit of a weird term but it's masters of philosophy in (laughs) in in menswear so um but it was it was because there was a research into face a research into body form and movement within the clothes so that interests me and i guess tailoring at that point was interesting to me and how you could update modernize the functionality of tailoring of the peg not just made to measure or you know or bespoke and then I was lucky enough to, after the graduate show, um, john Baptista Vialli um, had come to that show from Paris, and he was the creative director of Emmanuel Ngaro at, at the time at uh, the Couture House. And he um, offered me a job uh, doing the menswear um, as an assistant designer, working on the menswear for them. So, I suddenly found myself, you know, on the Eurostar going to Paris um, a couple of couple of weeks after our graduate show, um, and that was an incredible, an incredible experience. You were suddenly on Avenue Montaigne, which is the street where you have Dior, you have um, Chanel, you have all of these incredible fashion houses, Yves Saint Laurent, and and Balenciaga, and Givenchy around the corner. Um, and suddenly you're in that domain. Uh, you're there in the kind of hub of fashion. So, yeah, that was an incredible experience. So for me, that was really a kind of launch into, into a working fashion life.
0: And then a few years later, I think you were working at uh, Alexander McQueen.
1: Before that, I I applied. I heard that John Galliano was going to do menswear. Um through through friends who actually worked at Dior at the time. And so I applied, um, I applied for that job and um, I kind of didn't think, you know, much of it. I, I wasn't, I, I knew a lot of people that were going for that. So I kind of, I wasn't that hopeful <laughs> about getting it. And then um, um, a friend of mine dropped a book into my desk in work one day with all these, you um, Massadors, uh, these, these Spanish massadors, incredible pictures uh, and kind of said, oh, you know, you're going for that Galliano job, aren't you? Maybe this book's quite good for you to look at. And so I, I went home and sort of took the book apart and made clashes and, and sort of these things that popped up. And and I had already done a project for John for the for the job, but sort of realized then afterwards it wasn't really good enough. You know, so I, I dropped this project in to the to the front desk at uh, Dior and said, please, could you give this to to John and his team, you know? And so then I got a call and I, I got the job. So for me, that was that was huge because it was working. Um, he had, he was just starting the men's, So we I worked very closely with him for about three and a half, four years working on the men's there doing shows. Um, working with him at Dior, or, or working at, at the Galliano studio, which is in the 20th Small in Paris. And then I got a call to go to Alexander McQueen. So, yeah, that was moving back to London at that stage and, and working with with him.
0: What was that like in in that era? Because I think it was only sort of around that kind of time, really, that men's fashion started to become something that was essentially mainstream because before then it was very much just you know it was very simple people would just sort of wear jeans and a t-shirt there wasn't really much thought that went into what men on the whole were wearing until you know that kind of time when I think that there really was this shift of men starting to really think about their appearance and in how they express themselves and that becoming mainstream so that it was also not just for the celebrities but everyone.
1: Yeah, I mean, while I was at Galliano, just up the road was Hedy Slimane starting Dior Homme, which was obviously, especially in Paris, was such a a kind of movement into a new look at tailoring, a new silhouette. Uh, It it was a big, a big change. On the flip side, we were doing something very avant-garde and and getting a lot of, of press for doing that. And then moving to McQueen, where Um, yeah people were starting you could see that there was a real desire in not just to buy brands and labels but an an actual sort of attention to detail and how men's men were starting to dress and put looks together and put outfits together and I think brands were starting to think right we need to seriously think about men's wear and that's what I found myself doing I found myself designing um, for women's wear brands but creating their menswear. So whether it was John Galliano or whether it was Alexander McQueen, I was kind of in a way being brought in to sort of look at what they had done in women's and try and translate it into men's because this men's market was growing.
0: And it's only sort of, I suppose, on the, uh, on the cusp of sort of 2010, 2011, when I think that there was this real push of menswear being as popular as, as, as women's wear and for things to sort of be a case. I mean, you see it all the time now with fast fashion where something's on the runway and then next week it would be available in, in your fast fashion high street stores. Um, and there was a lot of, I guess, attention that was then being put on what people were wearing and influences being on the everyday man as opposed to it being sort of on these far-fetched ideas.
1: Yeah, I think fashion is, has changed so much. I mean. For me and to sort of going back to you know growing up in Dublin I mean obviously to at that stage to kind of tell people right I'm gonna I'm gonna be a fashion designer was kind of not you know that's really unusual yeah um, and in a, in a way there was a stigma still attached to that there was very few people especially guys who you know went to sort of school I went and whatever that would then go into fashion. It's You sort of fast track to today and I've been into this school. I I did a talk in in my old school about two years ago and these kids are, they're so savvy with what's going on. They're on social media, they know about Virgil, they wanna be this, they, you know, they know about all these collaborations happening. The whole sort of dynamic has changed and in a way, that sort of designer, like the Ray Kubos, or um, you know, this kind of idea of um, fashion being um, an art form, to some extent has been lost. I think, to some extent, that's that's quite a sad thing. You know, I you know, I think we were are so driven by um, what the you know commercially what's needed, what's needed. Um, what other brands are doing you know and sometimes i guess designers are sort of losing their own space um and and the brands are maybe losing their own identity to to a point so i think it's a very interesting evolution that we've seen in the past um 10 15 even maybe 20 years
0: yeah definitely and i'm just looking through um, through my notes i made because i just like i say your story is one that i think is just so incredible like you say someone to come from Ireland and Dublin and to sort of pursue menswear in the way that you have and go on to sort of have this journey and, and go and work for some of these incredible fashion houses as you have. After you were at um, Alexander McQueen, you went and you were the design director for Louis Vuitton. I mean, that's quite a, a yeah. an incredible thing to be able to, to say that you've done.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, working with Lee was probably, you know, and John um, like, were incredible experiences. And I don't think there's many designers like them around today. I, I think, you know, the, they really ins- were inspiring. So, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate to have been sort of taught by them. I mean, I, I see it as being taught by them, I didn't work for them. It was like, you know, it was an honor to kind of learn from them and everything they know. And, and in a way, you know, I think it would be lovely to just to, to be able to do more of that kind of work. I, I feel like we're drawn in, a, in other ways now, but, um, and it's amazing to see what John's doing at Margiela today. It's, it's, for me, the most, one of the most inspiring brands out there at the moment. Um, so, um, Yeah, I, you know, I think um, I've been very fortunate to do that. And then for me, it's also been very important to sort of choose roles that I felt would expose me to different things. So after working with John Galliano and then working at Alexander McQueen, the the offer came up to work on a travel capsule for Louis Vuitton. So it wasn't actually on the ready to wear. It was working um, directly with Yves Carcel and the sort of senior management on creating a small um, capsule of products that would go into the travel room. So they were incredibly expensive pieces that were fully foldable, um, washable, breathable, um, stain proof, using the latest technology and materials, lightweight. Um, And the idea was these kind of cubes that you could throw into a suitcase and travel anywhere in the world and you'd have an immaculate wardrobe. So that was the idea and and we realized that um, and I went into some of the travel rooms. That was an incredible experience. And then from there, I moved to Yves Saint Laurent to work with Stefano Pilati, which again was an incredible experience. And to work work in a Parisian fashion house like Yves Saint Laurent for me was a dream. So, you know, that was kind of a dream come true as well.
0: And I think around this kind of time, Um, social media was also starting to sort of really have an influence when it came to fashion, menswear and what people were wearing. At what point did that then become, I mean, as you say in your earlier days, it was about music and sort of newspaper cuttings and those kind of things. At what point did social media for you start to influence the ideas and different things that you were doing?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, What's weird is, like, you know, when I was working with John Galliano, I used to fax the sketches to him in when he was on research in Japan or in wh- wherever he would be. You'd fax all the sketches through with a cover note saying "private and confidential." You know, the idea we didn't have the the kind of technology that we have now in the fashion industry from a practical point of view, but then also from we, you know, all the research would be books. You'd have within those studios, you'd have all of those incredible books, you know, whether it's Irving Penn or, you know, Helmut Newton or, you know, Avedon, or what all those kind of fashion references that you would leaf through at the beginning of every season. And, and then vintage, you know, vintage research, going out to markets and going to, and for me, those things are still really valid and still really important and kind of a pleasure to have the time, to do obviously now in lockdown, doing vintage research is not possible. But um, for me, those are really important aspects to the creative process. Social media I, you know, has channeled a lot of that. You know, it's easy and it's accessible. Um, it is a tool that I think a lot of people are using now, you know, whether it's Pinterest or whether it's Instagram or whatever it might be. Um, but you know, I think it's nice to look further than that i think it's nice to get out there and like see clothing to and for me the key thing that i would always do at the start of a season is um look at at vintage and, and certainly with kenton kerwin because of the heritage of the brand the idea of looking into vintage is really important um because you're trying to um you're trying to in some way uh, recreate the the kind of um essence of those pieces what those pieces meant to the wear or whether it's like the way the, the label is stitched in or whether it's kind of worn out in a certain way um the way the color is shaded um, the wash effects you know for me all of those kind of things are so key you don't get that as much on social media I think you know at the end of the day what we do is produce products and being able to physically go out and see something and touch something you can't really replace that
0: Absolutely. Um, and you mentioned Kenton Kerwin, which I, I have to tell you is one of my favorite brands um, back in, in my house. I Glad mean, I've got to tell you, literally, I've probably got a whole rail that is just Kenton Kerwin um, from sort of the more tailored suiting to T-shirts, jumpers, trousers, chinos. I, I mean, I've got a lot. <laughs> it's one of my favorite brands. And I just think it's incredible because what you've managed to do is take something which is a traditional brand and bring it into the 21st century what was that like in the beginning and how did you go about doing that because you have essentially revived the brand and given it this new lease of life and made it made it cool
1: thank you that's uh, thanks for thanks for that
0: um i think um
1: for me, it was um, about looking at what that history was really. You know, 1926, um, Eric Kent, Dorothy Kerwin ma- meeting on Savile Row. He was a dandy. She was a seamstress. Um, he was selling ties and then got in with the Hollywood Cricket Club. This is after World War I, where he fought in the war. Um, and so you suddenly, you know, he was making... And, you know, at the beginning, I, I was like... Um, Okay, I want to go out and just look at loads of research because I was told there there was no archive. You know, uh, day one was like, okay, this is a brand from 1926. Show me the archive. I want to see those incredible cricket sweaters and rugby shirts and this, that, and the other. And there wasn't one. So, what do we do? You know, how do you go about that? So, it was a case of starting to slowly contact um, people who may have known. Eric Kent or his son, or may have worked in the factory in Surrey, or um, people that went to college or university and wore the blazers that had the and Kerwin label on the inside and start to get pieces in. And that's what we did in the first um, show, which is kind of an exhibition of some of those archive pieces that we managed to track down. And that was kind of a starting point for me. And then it's, it's, it was about, I mean, there's, there's a couple of things that were sort of you know, that you're kind of juggling because one idea is that heritage message. So it's about the piece that you kind of find in your granddad's ASIC that is this incredible jacket or knitwear piece. And you know the history that that is in that garment and in a way it kind of represent. And for me, it was trying to recreate that. But then at the same time, you know, um, eventually, after a couple of weeks, somebody dropped two books, um, archived books of ties, on my desk. And when I opened that, you could see all of the kind of clubs and and houses and and military regiments that Kent and Kerwin had done ties for in the in the thirties and forties. Um, so whether it was like a military regiment, a Scottish military regiment, or it was the Houses of Parliament uniform for the staff, or a bank in Mayfair, or Eton or Cambridge, or a rowing team. So suddenly you're like, hang on, this is about teams. Um, This is about uniform. And I find that in the context of what I grew up in, quite interesting because I think men are drawn to a sort of uniform. You know, um, I, want my, I moved back from Paris, so my kids and they are wearing uniform going to school, and they kind of feel sort of properly dressed going out the door, if you like. Um, and um, I feel like in our daily lives, we kind of look for uniform, and in a way, sort of looking for uh, a team to be part of, a team to associate ourselves with. So it's a bigger issue than just being part of say a rowing team or a cricket team or a boxing team or whatever we're you know the subcultures that I was into as a teenager whether it's like alternative music bands or you know whatever it might be they are in a way teams so you associate you see somebody walking down the street and you go well they I can associate with that person they like something similar to me you know and I guess we want for me it was quite important to bring that into the into kenton and kirwan and then they had tried before to reinvent the brand in a kind of a hack it way in a kind of preppy way and i just it didn't work i think that that area of the market is has been quite saturated so for me it was about you know british culture is also looking at um you know you have the the you have that um, code of dress, but then the, it's also about breaking those codes. It's like Johnny Rotten or the Sex Pistols wearing school jackets on stage, um, because they're taking those codes, but then they're graffitiing all over them. And it's for me, it was really about trying to juxtapose those two things together. So you have this because Britain is quite unique in that way. After working in France and in Italy, you see a very different culture. Here we're we have an incredible breadth of that sense of tradition and code of dress and uniform, but then also that music art, and, and sort of revolutionary kind of code of um, punk movement, the mods, the rockers, the, all these things in British cultural history that have kind of gone against the grain and created something unique. So for me, it was quite important to incorporate that in there. No,
0: definitely. And I, even when you look at sort of what you've done in incorporating the history, even when you go into the store, which I highly recommend that everyone listening to the podcast does, because I mean, the way that you've sort of made this store, it's beautiful with the, with the exposed wood paneling and just, you know, you walk in, it's, there's nothing quite like it. And you've got the... Um, uh, in, the, in the glass cases of different designs and things like that. It's just, it's a beautiful, stunning layout. Even the the changing room is just fantastic. And I think it's got this real, because I suppose we're used to nowadays going into stores with all the clean lines and everything v- being very minimalist. And, and, you know, there's not much on show and it's small and, and, you know, there's just a couple of lights. and But when you walk into to your store, it's very welcoming and open and it sort of feels like, you know, you're walking into that almost historical uh, museum and archive of different bits and pieces. And I think one of the things which is undeniable is the the reach that the brand has been able to, to achieve. Um, and, you know, even with the collaborations that you've done um, over the years with different people, with different bands. Um, I remember the Stone Roses collaboration that you did. Um, you know, a brand, any brand is not able to do what you have been able to, to do with Kenton Kerwin, essentially, because I just think that sometimes when you look at things, even if you were to to speak about it, it wouldn't make sense. But with Kenton Kerwin, it does. And I think maybe that's because of the history. Maybe it's because of, of, you know, the wide range of people who resonate with the clothing. But when you dive quite deep into it, it's just an incredible story that you've been able to tell essentially. Moving forward, where do you see the brand going?
1: Yeah, I think, um, I think there's, there's a huge kind of journey still to, you know, we're only sort of at the beginning of, of this journey, if you like. And I think we've, we've realized really what our kind of um, strengths are, you know, Um, and I think we've sort of hopefully solidified that in a way in terms of the jersey which is obviously our our strongest category I would love to expand on that I would love to um, build the collection that we are strong uh, as strong as we are in jersey and other other um, sectors I think knitwear is also one of our strengths Um, aside from that I think you know it's about um, expanding we we've got a great um, list of um, retailers in the, in the UK and in Europe. And we obviously, our online store is quite, is quite strong. It's kind of um, a key way of sort of judging um, the reaction to things because I keep a very close eye on that on it personally um you know what is selling what's not selling so yeah I'd love to expand our range but it's not about doing loads of, of more SKUs as we call it like SKUs um, it's not about doing loads of more styles in, in the range I think it's just about developing um a, sm- a small collection but you know a concise one that still can tell the story for the brand um, and um that would be an exciting next step I think
0: no, definitely. When um, when you look at sort of what you've been able to achieve, I suppose quite a big part of it has come from um, your online presence and what you've been able to do with social media. Yeah. Moving forward, do you see, I know that you said that you've been appointed with, uh, with some other roles within the Trinity um, brand. Do you see that that is going to be a running theme with those two, where you start to sort of look at ways that you can utilize the um, social media side of things in order to reach new markets and to appeal to a wider demographic of people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I think with Kent and Kern, we've started that journey, you know, over the past number of years. Um, it would be great to do that with Gives and Hawks and, and Shruti. It's it's a shame that. I've taken the reins on those brands during COVID, uh, during lockdown because things are just not possible to do. So um, I'm excited for, you know, the next stage with those brands. They're very different brands to um, Kent and Kerwin. And um, Gives for me, after working in Paris and working with couture houses is the closest we have in a way in menswear London. To a Prisian Couture House. We have an atelier with incredible talent um, making incredibly hand-tailored pieces for clients all over the world. That's an incredibly exciting thing. Um, and I would love to get that message out there to people uh, to be able to express the, the craft and skill that um, is within that brand and the history. It's got, you know, 250 years of, of history and dressing. You know some of the most significant people from Churchill to you know all members of the royal family. So it's got a it's got a huge depth of history that um, it would be great to channel through social media and sort of re reimagine a bit that that collection uh, and the offering um, to suit, I guess, new lifestyles. Because I guess we're all coming out of the past year thinking, you know, what do we want to wear? Um, where are we going? Um, you know, I think some of us maybe are sick of wearing tracksuits um, at home or a jersey anyway. Uh, do, but, you know, I feel like that's going to be an intrinsic part, part of everyone's life going forward. But it's just how that is, I guess, um, you know, made relevant to the world post the present situation. And do we want to be getting back into conventional tailoring or do we want to be looking at a new approach to tailoring so I think all of that is sort of questions I'm, I'm addressing at the moment.
0: Yeah definitely and um, I suppose like you say with COVID and sort of figuring out how we're going to do things and uh, you know especially for you taking on new roles within uh, a global pandemic um, when we think about how things were prior Kenton Kerwin, without a doubt, used to put on some of the best shows at Fashion Week. Um, You know, you had the best guests and you had the most amazing experiences. Everyone wanted to to attend your shows. Um, You know, the press coverage was great. And obviously now with lockdowns happening consistently, it's meant that we aren't able to have things in a normal way that we would before. So how have you managed to adapt in that sense of, how you do things, how Kent and Kerwin manages to to, to function and run, I suppose, for the other brands as well um, during the pandemic. What is a normal day like?
1: Well, for Kent and Kerwin, for me, our e-commerce has never stopped. I think, you know, there has been difficulties in terms of the logistical side, you know, when the warehouse might be shut and things like that. But we've managed, I think, pretty well through the pandemic to maintain our services to our customers. Um, for me, then, I, I've as I said, I've been quite hands-on. I think it's about direct to consumer. I'm at home doing shoots, you know, uh, posting stuff to get product awareness out to the the customer, and you know, that's part of part of what I do that I I enjoy doing. Um, I would love to be able to get out there and tell more of a story and have a more broad story and narrative to tell around collections. But we've had to obviously do with what we can, you know, uh, for the moment. So um, I think we've adapted okay. And I think, um, you know, uh, hopefully we can sort of come back and do some of the activities we used to do um, after this. for, for Geeves, you know, they have maintained uh, incredible contacts um, all over the world in the States with customers who want suits, who are ordering through email or um, by telephone because um, they can't go into the store. Um, but, you know, that uh, made to measure and bespoke business um, is so important. And I think that's something that we're going to see more and more of is, is people wanting that kind of service, that kind of incredible craft and service that they can offer. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think that will only, that's maintained itself during, during uh, the pandemic and hopefully will grow because afterwards people can go into the store and, and get their suits fitted then and, and, you know, we can develop and expand that business
0: do you see a sense of going back to, because I this phrase, the new normal, I suppose, is one that we've sort of heard so many times. But do you think that there is a chance that we will go back to what was, I suppose, the old normal? Or do you see it now a case of embracing what the last year has taught us and in the way that Brands are able to function and work from home and and do all of these different things Um, in terms of I suppose it's different when you're when you're doing tailoring because you physically need to, to be present in order to tailor a suit and do all of those kind of things. But do you think that there are some aspects that now having experienced and been forced to sort of take on that you won't be going back to the old normal per se?
1: Yeah I think within our business there's definitely work you can do remotely Um, and I think people's attitude will definitely shift and change. I don't think we're going to go straight back to what we used to do but I do think fashion is still an area where we kind of people want to escape to. It's, It's a pleasure in life. It's it's something that whether it's a video or whether it's a store experience or whether it's online or it's social media um or it's a show it's something that people can kind of escape into you can kind of sell people or show people i should say uh, you know um something new something different within that within those kind of spaces and i think people will still want something like that you know people want that escapism if you like that fashion can provide but we also provide a service you know and we also provide um you know i, I think for for Kent and Kerwin, you know we we hopefully have been providing people with the kind of jersey pieces they want to wear during lockdown um and then coming out of that how do we how do we modify to people's lives you know as they as they um you know do we do we have the kind of right pieces within the range that can facilitate where what they're going to do post the pandemic so i guess you know and it's the same subject for geese and it you know they we're doing pieces for in bespoke that are maybe you know padded jackets that are tailored to somebody that you know why not have a bespoke pair of trousers or a shirt or a Um, you know, field jacket? Why does it have to be a conventional suit? So for me, they're the kind of questions that are exciting. You know, I think we can break down some of those kind of standard um, preconceptions. And I think a lot of brands will be looking to do that and and break away from some of the the ways of working that they had before the pandemic.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess a good question to ask you would be, if you were to give yourself, I always say to the guests that come on the show, um, to give some advice to their younger self and we will do that. But I think if you were to give yourself some advice from what the last year has taught you to yourself two years ago, what do you think that that would be given the way that things have changed?
1: It's a good question.
0: Um, I, I would say, um,
1: Just about keeping things reasonably simple is not a bad thing, you know. Um, I I, I think also, you know, now after the past year, probably we all crave travel. We all crave, you know, going and eating in, in a restaurant or something like that, or going to an exhibition. So making the most of what is available to you within where you live and, and, um, and your environment I think is key. Um, I think, you know, in terms of what I would say to a younger uh, me coming into the fashion industry, um, it would be definitely, you know, stay true to yourself. I think there is, there's an element of learning. I think try and learn as much as you can from all your experiences. I mean, I'm still learning now every day whether it's through conversations with people whether it's you know people mentioning some reference that i hadn't known and, and then i want to go away and i want to research that and and check that out you're always learning and i would always say be be open to that and never
0: kind of be rigid in your in your approach do you think that that would ring true for someone who was maybe looking to follow or begin their journey into fashion into the same way that you are now to have themselves aspire to be like in 10 or 15 years time do you think that that's the same advice that you'd give them today
1: yeah i think um i would also say you know learn the the craft you know learn learn how to make clothes i think i think it's so important you understand how clothes are actually made Um, i'd also say don't get carried away with what's happening on social media i mean we're all probably a little bit Overly on there, uh, overly obsessed with it, but it's not. Don't get, don't get sidetracked by that. I think is quite key. Don't look absolutely. too much. Don't look too much at what other people are doing. You know, I think everybody has a story themselves, and everybody can express their own story, and that way you make your own space.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, one question that I always like to end on with guests, because I think that this just gives. A brilliant idea of uh, their influences. Um, and it also sort of has a bit of a, a story behind them. If you had a dinner party, let's say pre COVID or post COVID, this is a celebration. Um, six people, dead or alive, coming to your house for a dinner party, um, three courses. What are they going to eat? And who are these six guests?
1: Firstly, I'd say, could it please be in a restaurant and not in my house after, <laughs> after, after cooking, cooking for, yeah, four with with my kids and everything for the past year. Um, I shouldn't say I did all the cooking, by the way, because my my fiance would kill me for that because she she's been doing most of it. But um, yeah, uh, definitely in a nice restaurant would be amazing. Um yeah I, it's, a, it's a really tough one. There's probably loads of people, but the people that came to mind in terms of real characters that I wish I could have a conversation with, um, Francis Bacon. I mean, for me, he's, he I'm kind of obsessed with watching some of the South Bank documentaries he, with him, and just he was such an incredible character. and I've just I, I read his um, biography not that long ago. Um, he would have been fascinating, I think, to talk to. Um, Eileen Gray, who was an Irish um, architect and interior designer um, who lived in Paris, um, and had an incredible story. You know, she she um, she traded uh, making rugs initially uh, that were sold on Rue Saint Honoré under a, under a man's name, and then built a house on the on the French um, Mediterranean coast. Um, that Le Carbusier, the, the architect, you became obsessed with. So for me, she's an incredible personality and character. Um, Tyler, the creator, would be an, an, a great person to, to have at a table. I think you know, his, his personal style, but also then what he is doing with his golf brand, it'd be great to have a chat with him. Tom York has been a, a kind of a, you know a bit of an idol for me for a long time. Um, and it would be really interesting to get his view on what's going on in the world at the moment. Um, David Hockney, again, somebody I've, I've you know, ad- I massively admire um, and it would, you know, it would be an honor to to invite him um, to dinner. Um, and then I guess, um, I just put Daniel Day-Lewis at the end because again, you know, as an actor, I just, um, his phantom thread was spectacular. And, um, you know, in a way for me, I've kind of used him as a fashion reference through years. Like we, we opened a um, McQueen show with Bill the Butcher from, um, from the Gangs of New York, you know? So yeah, that would be
0: my, my six that's incredible and i suppose um let's leave everyone with uh with a with a list of sort of where they can find you what the uh urls and everything are i'll leave everything in the um in the description for them to find but if you just give them sort of a a summary of where they can instagram and all of that kind of thing
1: yeah i'm i'm on instagram so just daniel.kearns on on I've got Facebook as well, but I don't use it that much. And um, yeah, that's it. I think that's all. All my bits and pieces.
0: Okay, I'll link uh, Kent and Cohen and all of the brands in, yeah, the, in the description yeah. as yeah. well, so that people can uh, can go and check them out. Uh, thank you for for coming to join us today. It's been a, a great honor for me personally um, to be able to to sit and just have this one-on-one time to ask you these questions and to really dive into it because I suppose for for a long time you know people will look at the brand but not necessarily understand specifically the history behind the brand and for me it's about trying to understand the people that are then behind the brand too and understand their story and their journey Um, and that's what this podcast is all about essentially so thank you it's a pleasure thanks very much Zach.